It's uh, good to start the year with the Word of God, amen? I'm I'm hungry for the Word of God this year, Um, and and I really want the Word to set the tone for my 2017. Do you know that God has plans and purposes to fulfill in your life this year? He really does. He wants to bless you. He wants to free you up more than you've ever been before. It's just what he's like. He, he never wants to leave us where we are. He, he, it says in the Bible that God loves to move us from glory to glory. And it's, he's always doing that. It's just what, what he does. He, he never wants us to level off. He's always got blessing. It's what he's like. And we've got a number of new people here today. Um, so I want to say, if you're here and you're not sure what to believe at the beginning of 2017, I want to encourage you to put your hope in Jesus. It is, it is, there is no better way to start the year than to put in your life in the hands of God through Jesus Christ. I believe that the Lord wants to restore our relationship with him. I believe he wants us to be walking very close with him. Not just in an outward profession not just by being here on a Sunday mornings, but having the core of our lives flowing with the life of God and plugged into fellowship with God and moving by the power of the Holy Spirit every day. That's what I believe the Lord wants for each of us. Rory just talked about New Year's resolutions a little bit. I don't know if you have one for yourself or for somebody else. Uh, But I can tell you that there's no resolution that's going to be more powerful and effective than surrendering your life to Jesus and asking him to transform it by his power and not by your willpower alone. How many of us have had good intentions at this time of year and by February we're wondering what happened to those? The world is pretty broken. It's very, very, very beautiful. And it's remarkable, but it's pretty broken as well. And... So are we. We're tremendously beautiful. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're so beautiful. There you go. I won't ask you to turn to the person on the other side and say, you are so broken. <laughs> but, but both things are true. Actually, there is so much beauty in your life. There are so many beautiful things about who you are and who God has made you to be, but the, there is also things that are broken about you as well, as we know. And as we grow older, we realize there are things in our lives that are not as they should be. There are things that we'd love to do and to be that we find that we cannot do and we can't be those people. And there are things that, that, that we do that we wish we didn't do. It's, Paul talks about it in the Bible. He said that, you know, there are things, uh, I have good intentions, there are things I want to do, but I just can't do it. Because there is this sin at work in my, in my life. It's in my flesh. And it's just, just how it is to be human. But God never leaves us in the same place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians verse 5 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He wants to reconcile you to himself. He's the one who makes us whole and fills us with his purpose. It's actually as we, our life comes into communion with God that everything becomes possible. That his wholeness can begin to invade our lives 
in a fresh way. And things that are broken about us can begin to become mended. That's why the Apostle Paul also says in the same verse, same chapter in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you're tired from trying to manage your brokenness, I believe this is a word for some here this morning. It's time to take God at his word afresh and ask him to make you a new creation and to become a new person this year, a more complete person empowered by the Spirit of God. That's what you need. You need the Spirit of God. The Bible doesn't say that we need to go forward with fear or a sense of defeat or condemnation. Listen to the description of the spirit that God gave us, and Fraser's already read it this morning. It says this, The spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. How many of us need more power and love and self-discipline to manage our lives and to grow in grace? So you don't need to be ashamed that you can't fix everything yourself. You need need more of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you power and love and self-discipline. And I believe that God is inviting us as a church to put our trust in him afresh this morning and what he wants to do in us. He's always going to be the answer. We're never going to graduate beyond our need for Jesus. We're never going to be able to get to a point where we no longer need the Holy Spirit at work, reordering our inner lives and calling us after his purposes. In fact, the the, the further down the road you go, the more desperately you know you need it. It says in Acts 4, verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for no other name is given under heaven by which we must be saved. I want to be more saved this year. I really do. I really want my life to be more saved. I want, it, I want the, the things in my life that are stuck to be released. I want my passion for God to increase this year. I want the way I deal with people to be more gracious this year. I want my kindness to grow. I want my love to grow. I want my joy to grow. I want to live healthier. I want my spiritual disciplines to get stronger. I want my prayer life to to explode even more. I want to get into the Word like I've never got into the Word before. I want to become more of the man that God has called me to be this year. And I need the salvation of God. I I need Jesus. There is no other name. There is no other way. You can't just get a five point help scheme or some self help book that's going to do it. You need Jesus. It's time to surrender it all again and to trust him with everything. We've got to put our lives into, the, into his hands. We've got to trust him. It's a bit like a kid with a broken toy that has been trying to fix his toy for days and days and tried all kinds of ways to fix his toy. And eventually, he, out of frustration, he gives up and he goes and hands it to his father and says, You fix it! And the father says, Sure. And, you know... Uh, turns it over, opens the back, takes, has a look at the part, sees straight away where the broken part is, gets the right tool, fixes it, puts it all back together, and then hands it back to the child. All of a sudden, it fires into life, and it works. It works as it's intended. And the, the first thing that will go through any child's mind in that scenario is, why didn't I go sooner? 
Why did I try all my cat-handed efforts to try and make this thing work and get all cross about it? It's like that with our lives. We have to hand our lives over to the hands of the Father. We have to trust His wisdom to be able to see, or first to be able to look at the things that we can't see within ourselves. Often we don't even know what's wrong with ourselves, we just see the symptoms and the way that things present and manifest in our lives. But God sees right into the core. He sees right where the problem is, right at its heart. And he's able to go and to open us up and to go right into the inner workings of our lives to see what is wrong. He has that wisdom and that insight. But he also has the tools to fix it and then to to put us back together. Are you here this morning feeling like you're in pieces? Because God knows how to put you back together. And he also knows how to make you fire into life and to do the things that you were made to do. We can't fix things on our own. We need to hand over our lives to God. We need to let go and we need to trust Him with our lives. So I just want to pause and pray. Father, I want to pray for anyone here that is feeling in any way disempowered or a bit stuck in life. Lord, I want to pray for the courage to hand our lives over to you afresh. To be able to commit ourselves to you, to trust you, to say, here I am, just as I am. Lord, would you restore me? Would you put me together? And would you cause me to be able to live as you intended me to live? Lord, you are our maker. You know what to do with us. And so I pray that our trust levels this year would increase and I pray that we would frequently, intentionally come to you and allow you to work on us. Lord, may this be a year where we see you moving in great power, not just with extra willpower or mind over matter, but we would agree with you of what you say is true about us and we would step into that truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse for the year. Well, last year's verse was, I think, very important for us. Last year's verse was Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. And it was out of a vision where Jesus spoke to Paul. uh, And he said to Paul in this vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. That was our our verses for 2016. And I think we walked in those verses last year. I think we dealt with some of our fears about speaking up for Jesus. I think when we did the festival especially, we launched that. I think that there was an ease of doing that. And there was was a, a, a confidence to proclaim who we are loud and proud as Christians. And I think some of us kind of dealt with some of our evangelophobia through doing that. And there's something about going out together as a group in solidarity with, with our shared love for God that made it easy, didn't it? Yeah. And nobody attacked and harmed us. We had one person ever so slightly cross about the sound levels. That was about as, as hostile as it got. So I think the Lord was faithful to that word last year. And I believe that we, a lot of us have grown a lot more confident and, uh, to be able to keep on speaking and to not be silent and to deal with our fear. And he was with us. The Lord was with us in 2016. And I think we began also to open our eyes to the idea that there are many people 
in this vicinity whom God has prepared to bring to himself. Well, this year the Lord has been speaking to me around the concept of harvest. Dropped into my spirit a few times last year. You know sometimes when, when you're open to the Lord and you're asking him to speak to you, sometimes you can just hear a word or see a picture and it suddenly speaks louder than it should do. There's something in your spirit that flags up. Maybe God's talking to me here. Sometimes you're reading your Bible and a certain phrase will jump off the page uh, and you think, yeah, that's for me. That's what God's saying. I need to stick, stick with that and work out what God's saying to me. Well, this word harvest came up a few times. And every time I heard the word harvest, it was like my ears would prick up. Uh, and uh, it just became important. And then uh, at the evening when we were talking about transitioning to mission communities and we made the decision together to become uh, a church that had mission communities rather than just home groups, I remember Diana shared a word about harvest. Do you remember that? Well, at the end when we had lots of feedback and we were discussing it, she said something along the lines of, um, the, she shared about how in rural communities, especially going back kind of a hundred years or more, when the harvest is, needs to be brought in, it's a multi-generational affair. Like a whole village would come out together to work together to bring in the harvest. And it would be from the oldest to the youngest and everybody would have their part within it. Everyone would have a job to do, whether it's, you know, threshing or gleaning or uh, working the scythe, tying up bundles, carrying it in, whatever it is, there's, there's tons, you know, treading the wine press. There's all sorts of different tasks involved in bringing in the harvest. And it was a whole family affair, and therefore it was a whole family celebration when it all came in. So that, that was something that, that came up on that night as we were contemplating whether we should do this mission communities thing, and we decided to do it. Well... That has continued to grow. Just that picture of harvesting has continued to grow in my spirit. And I've been asking God, okay, Lord, what, what do you want us to do? And give us some verses that encapsulate your heart for us for 2017. So I believe the Lord is looking for a harvest. Prophetically speaking, this is the great priority of heaven. That God's beloved people would be grown and saved and brought into his house. This is not just about local church expansion or success. This is about God's great desire and passion to gather the people that he loves. It's the ultimate purpose of creation, actually. That creation would yield a harvest of loved ones in relationship with God. So we're going to do a quick Bible study this morning on this idea of harvest, and then I want to share what I believe God is saying to us as a church. This harvest motif reoccurs throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament peoples prospered or suffered depending on the quality of the harvest each year. It was central to life. Everything hung on it. If it was a good harvest that year, everything went well in that community. If it was a bad harvest that year, everything became so hard. Nobody could prosper. And sometimes when there was a drought in the, in the whole land and the harvest became, became bad in the whole land, there was just a level of bitterness to life that I, that I don't think any of us have ever tasted. Where there was no backup plan. There was nothing to eat. In Genesis, 
going right back to the beginning, you see there's no need for a harvest because everything is just there all the time, ripe, ready to pick and enjoy. There was no hard toil or hard work in the Garden of Eden. It was just all laid on by God, which is wonderful. And then at the fall, it all went a bit wrong, didn't it? That's when weeds and thistles and stuff came in. I hate those. I have to battle with those in my garden. I reckon that might be when slugs and snails came in as well. I don't know. Or mosquitoes. Yeah, there's a few things. Name your least favorite animal. That's when it came in. In Genesis. And then uh, you've got Cain and Abel with their harvests. One acceptable to God and the other unacceptable. The gifts that come from their harvest. So our spirituality has been linked to this idea of harvest right from the very beginning. And then you've got Joseph and his dreams. What are his dreams about? Sheaves of wheat bowing down to other sheaves of wheat. It's all kind of harvest language. And then he goes to Egypt. And then Pharaoh has dreams. And what are his dreams about? They're about harvests. Seven good harvests and then seven bad harvests. And, and then it's all about harvest. And that entire story of Joseph and his brothers about them uh, coming to Egypt because the harvests have been so bad in Canaan. They come to Egypt to, to buy food, and of course there is uh, stores of food in Egypt because they've been wise about managing their harvests in Egypt. So right through all the books, all the history books, right through the Psalms, the wisdom literature, especially Job and Ruth. Ruth is like all harvest. The harvest is the backdrop of the story so often. And again and again in the prophets. The harvest language is there. They speak to us usually as a harvest. It's the sign of God's blessing. That God will bring fruitfulness upon the land. That God will bless you. That your wine presses will overspill. That we will rejoice as when we have new wine and fresh grain. There's, there's a lot of harvest language in the prophets. And then of course there's, there's the cursing and the punishment. As the people turn their backs on God. And God says, you know, your grapes will wither on the vine. And uh, your, your vineyards will be like a, a haunt of jackals and owls. And the land will be left desolate. Sometimes the people want to honour God. And one of the ways that they do it is about giving of their first fruits. They want to take that which is the first from their land and give it to God to, to say thank you. To say we, we acknowledge that all of this really comes from you. So the Old Testament is packed with harvest talk. It's woven into the culture, therefore, of Jesus' hearers. Because Jesus spoke to a rural community who relied heavily on the harvest. These were, these were people that were very uh, familiar with the harvest and the rhythms that that gave them throughout the year. But also it was interwoven in their long-term history and in their spirituality. So every level... In Jesus' hearers, there is harvest. Do you understand? So it's no surprise that Jesus picks up on this harvest motif. But what is interesting is that nearly every time Jesus mentions the harvest, he does so almost exclusively to teach his followers about people. So he refers to the harvest, he makes use of the pictures and the metaphors and the idea of the harvest, but to teach us about people about how, and about how the kingdom of God works. Jesus says again and again, there's going to be a harvest of the kingdom, an ingathering of people whom God has prepared and grown and nurtured, gathered, 
into his house. This harvest of people is the great priority of the kingdom of God. And I really noticed it as I, as I started to move through Jesus' teaching with this harvest idea in mind, just how often he comes back to this harvest language. And I think whenever you see Jesus repeating something again and again and again, you should, we should, as his followers, really sit up and take notice that this is something that's important. This is central to Jesus. A quick study of his references to the harvest of the kingdom, and you'll see it speaks of two distinctly different harvests. He speaks about it in two very different ways. So one of them, one harvest, is set for a future time. A great final harvest at the end of the age, at the end of the consummation of time. At his appointed time, the harvesters, who in this harvest are angels, will come and they will gather in a harvest of people. God's great rewards are for his ingathered people at that moment. You can read about it in Revelation 14, but we're going to look at it from Matthew 13. So if you want to open your Bibles at Matthew 13, starting from verse 23. This one is often called the parable of the weeds. Okay. I just had a fleeting thought. I want to get all Pentecostal. Would you, would you mind standing for the word of God? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is quite long as well, so you'll be standing for a little while, but it'll give you a chance to move around a bit. So, Matthew 13 from uh, verses, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir... Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let, them. let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat up and bring it into my barn. Jump down to verse 35. He left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... 
the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Do take your seats. This is this great apocalyptic future harvest. Where one day God is going to bring in the harvest once and for all, finally, into his house. God is still working towards that appointed time. The time is set, and we are moving towards it. We are closer to that time than we were when I I started speaking. It is coming. It may be sooner than we think. I don't know. It may be further off than we think. I don't know when you think it'll be. Jesus said we won't know anyway, so I kind of leave it to him. But one day... The harvest that God is seeking from the earth will be complete and it will be fully gathered in. Now what happens when the the harvest is fully gathered in, in any normal harvest? A celebration, a party. That party at the end of the age, I think, is going to be like nothing we've ever seen before. I remember when, uh, a few years ago, I was on a, a, a mission team to the south of France in Pazios. It's a winemaking region, really great food and wine there. We were there suffering for the gospel. And, um, it's an amazing place, and that, that whole place just revolves around the grape harvest. And all year long you have these people, these amazing wine growers who are like sons of the soil. They're just passionate about growing wine. All they talk about is is the quality of their grapes and, and things like that. Um, it's, 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 it's really entrenched into the culture in that part of the world. And you get these, these people that have farmed these same vineyards for generation after generation after generation. Some of them are really difficult and inaccessible and high up in the mountains where the best wine grows and they have to work really hard all year round to get these grapes to exactly the point that are needed at the time of the harvest. And then at the time when harvest is ready, what they, they go out every day, they're testing the grapes, they're testing the grapes, they're testing, and at the moment those grapes are at their best, it's like mad panic. Everyone's got to get those grapes in as fast as they possibly can. So there's all this kind of slow, ploddy work all throughout the year, and then there's a week where they have got to get the entire grape harvest in. And there are people that come from all around the world to go and join the, the, the harvest. Because they can't bring it in on their own anyway. It's, it's a many hands thing. Because you can't often mechanically uh, harvest the grapes. They have to be done by hand. So, especially high up in the mountains. So people come from all over the world to help with the grape harvest. And it's backbreaking work. It's like getting up as the sun gets up. It's working all day out in the heat in the south of France to get as many grapes in as you can before the sun goes down and you get a short amount of sleep. People do this for their summer holiday. Why? Well, I tell you, at the end of that harvest, the, the feeling in the south of France, it's just tangible. There's this tangible sense of relief and joy and celebration. There's parties in the street. It's just an incredible place to be when the harvest is in. So if you've been part of bringing that harvest in and then you're celebrating with the other people that are contributing to the carve, which is what they call it down there, um, the cooperative it's just a phenomenal way to spend your summer holidays. It sort of finishes with celebration. I remember it well. It'll be like that times a million when finally this age is brought to a close and God receives what this planet was made for, the harvest at the end of the age. 
that should be there in our spirits as, as a reference point and as a source of great hope. That is there for every single one of us. Take comfort from it, especially if life is hard at the moment. Look forward to it. Because our excitement about what God is going to do should inform the here and now as well. It makes us people of hope. And it reminds us that we need to lead people to Jesus here and now. So that they can be involved in that. So the first kind of harvest is for the future. It's a final harvest. The other harvest that Jesus teaches his followers about is in the present, not in the future. It's now, and it's always now, and it's continually right. Unlike the future harvest where the angels do all the harvesting, in these teachings, the followers of Jesus are the harvesters, us. And in all of these teachings, God has high expectations of our willingness and ability to get the job done. I want to try to share with you how Jesus sees things. I want to share with you Jesus' three main perspectives, as far as I understand them, on the present harvest that he talks about. First one is this. The Lord has already planted the present harvest. He has cared for it. Like those sons of the soil in Pazios throughout the year. He has planted it. He has cared for it. He has brought it to readiness. But he expects us to harvest it. Turn to Matthew and 21. This is another of Jesus' hard-hitting parables. And I will allow you to be seated for this one. This is the parable of the tenants. It says this from verse 33. I think it is. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants and they beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Well, that's hard hitting, isn't it? So questions, and you can shout out the answers. Who designed and built the vineyard? The landowner, yeah. And who does the landowner represent, Tristan? God. Yeah. So who planted and established the vines? The landowner. God, in this parable. Who is looking to receive the ingathered harvest? 
God or the landowner? Who is supposed to gather in the harvest? The tenants. Who do the tenants represent in this story? Wow. I don't know. Did you kill the first lot of people that came to receive, uh, to, to pick up the harvest? The Jewish leaders, I believe. This is, it says that when, they, when he spoke this parable, he, they knew that he had spoken it against them. So the Jewish leaders killed and abused the prophets and murdered the Son of God. Threw him out of the garden. Okay? So these are the, the unrighteous tenants. What does God intend to do with his vineyard once he has removed the unfaithful tenants? What will he do? Get some more tenants. Give it to others. Does he still want a harvest? Yes. He just expects different people to gather it in. Who are the new tenants? His faithful followers, yeah. Those who genuinely care about what God wants and are eager to bring him blessing and the desires of his heart. That's who I believe that Jesus is referring to when he says, uh, when he, he, he uh, agrees with them of what the landowner should do. He should give it to new tenants, ones that will give him his share of the harvest at the proper time. He's planted our vineyard. He's designed our world and therefore this area too. He's planted a kingdom harvest and he's done so here. And then he says to his followers, don't be like those who have gone before, the bad tenants, dis disregarding my desire for my harvest and simply enjoying the place for yourselves. That's essentially what Jesus is saying in this passage. God wants every believer to work together to bring in his harvest, leading people to Christ, watching them transform and supporting them as they spill over with the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul really got this. He was, he was a harvester, but he actually trans, he transitioned from being a bad tenant harvester that was out there to kill the servants of God and the prophets, and he transitioned to become a harvester of the kingdom of God who cared deeply about what Jesus wanted and what God deserved and what God, God was hoping for from every region that he landed in. He says in Romans 1 verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul was a harvester. He knew God had prepared people for him to gather in wherever he went. And I believe we can learn a lot from Paul this year. God is waiting with great expectation and anticipation for the ingathering he has already prepared for us here in Totnes United 3. So when is it time to harvest? Jesus' second perspective. According to Jesus, it's always, 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 always time. Always. When Jesus talks about the present harvest, there is a sense that it's always ripe, it's always out there, ready and waiting for us. There's a great harvesting story in John chapter 4, and I want to set the scene for you, where Jesus meets this woman at a well. And it's not really the done thing to speak to strange women at, at wells when you're a rabbi. Um, 
and it, it got the disciples raising their eyebrows and talking amongst themselves. But he, Jesus saw something in this woman that came to draw water from a well that, that got his attention, and he, he went after her as a fruit of the kingdom, as, as potential harvest. Uh, it says, John 4, verse 31, Meanwhile, oh, sorry, let me just say, they've had this conversation. Jesus has... Um, has answered some of her questions. He has said, I've got living water for you to drink. There's a little bit of banter. He, he deals with some of her hang-ups about where they should worship, whether in Samaria or in Jerusalem. And then he, he shares this word of knowledge with her. And he says, why don't you bring your husband? And she, uh, she says, I don't have a husband. He said, you've answered right because you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. She then realizes that he's a prophet um, and um, believes but with that, something clicks within her. And she thinks, is this the Messiah? It's almost like she has this kind of wake-up call. I think I'm talking with the Messiah. Her life is radically transformed. She believes in Jesus, runs back to her village to tell everybody she's just met somebody who thinks she thinks may be the Messiah. Okay? Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus was energized by and sustained by the sense of calling and the prospect of a great kingdom harvest. I have to say, between you and I, I do love the fact that these disciples thought that he had a secret stash of food that he didn't want to share with them. That he had some Kit Kats and pasties stuffed in his robes somewhere. I love that. They missed the point entirely. Jesus turns to them and he says to them, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, those who reap draw their wages. Even now, they harvest a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Who's the sower? Yeah, God in this scenario. Who's the reaper? Him and his disciples in this moment. There's a great partnership between God and people, both working together for the same harvest. God doing the sowing, sometimes through people that have gone before us, and then we get to do the reaping. It moves on, verse 37 of John 4. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, but you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What a privilege that you could reap the benefits of other people's hard work. Where other people have sown seeds of faith and prayed and encouraged and served them. And then you have the privilege of being in the right place at the right time to lead them to Christ and watch them be born again by the power of God. Yeah. That's what God has for each of us to be involved with. That's what God has prepared. And yet the disciples in this story were missing that privilege left, right and centre. Why? Because they had a mindset that assumed that the harvest was always four months away, or, or in the future sometime. They didn't ever expect God to be particularly at work in the here and now. It was always sometime. So at some point, we're going to see God do some stuff. We're going to see some people that we know get saved. This person that has been asking all these questions, some point, a few months down the road, maybe, they'll come to faith. Sometime, not sure when, but it isn't now. 
They were inattentive to what was in front of them because they assumed that there would be little to see. And I believe that a lot of Christians live like this. I, I, I confess that I live a lot of my life like this. I love the idea of people responding to God and coming to faith, but I'm not always good at seeing the opportunities that are under my nose. We imagine the opportunity will be some other time and therefore we don't look for the harvest that is ripe for today. Jesus says, open your eyes. Jesus couldn't have demonstrated the importance of this better because in the next verse in John 4, in verse 39, it says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of this, his work, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We've now heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. They got it. Two days. The disciples were with him for years and they struggled to recognise that. But these Samaritan, Samaritan people recognised and believed. How? One seized opportunity at a well. Two days of sharing, massive impact, huge harvest, totally different village. Two days. Was the harvest prepared when Jesus first sat down at the well? Was that Samaritan village already ready to receive the word of God? I believe it was. Yes, they were ready. Would it have been gathered in if Jesus had not seen the opportunity? No. It would have literally passed by. And Jesus could see that the disciples were blind to it. He says to them, open your eyes and stop assuming that God is never ready. Stop assuming that God is never ready. So Jesus' perspective of the harvest opened his eyes to the opportunity in front of him. A fleeting opportunity that he took and it opened a door to an unexpected time of grace and in gathering. I believe that's something the Lord wants to teach us this year. To assume that always there is somebody who is ripe for faith at all times. And watching for opportunities and to ask his help to understand what he wants to do here and now. To see the one person in front of us and also to walk through open doors of grace and revival. Because I believe he has those planned this year. So, the Lord is the one who does the planting and preparing and bringing people to the point of faith. He sees that the harvest time is always now continually ripe and ready. And Jesus' third perspective, there's not enough harvesters. There's not enough harvesters. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 72. I spoke on this passage just before Christmas. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So what is he asking his followers to do? He wants them to pray. Pray, 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 specifically for workers, those who have a desire to bring in God's harvest. 
I believe this is a call for us, specifically as a church, this coming year. We need to pray for workers, harvesters, not just for a harvest of the future, but for a harvest of today. Workers, harvesters, people who walk in a harvest is now perspective, with anticipation. We need to pray this year that people will arise both from amongst us and from outside, that will come in to help us with the harvest that God has prepared, that people will be drawn to help us and to come alongside and to be part of what God is doing here in this place. I also see Jesus saying here that as well as praying for workers, we need to be willing to be the answer to our own prayers. The next verse in Luke 10, verse 3 says, Go. I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, or lambs amongst wolves. I think there's a lot of power in that little word go. Two little letters, but it's the difference between seeing a revival and loving the idea of it, I think. Jesus said, pray for workers, and then you go. I'm sending you out. It's as though Jesus says we cannot sit in the barn and wait for the harvest to sprout legs and walk in to meet us. Jesus wants us to go and fetch it in. So these are the verses that I believe are going to be most significant for us this year. If you could bring them up, Ollie. Whoa. Big verse. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I am sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Luke 10, 2 and 3. That, I believe, is going to set our spiritual sat-nav for this year. And I know that the end of it sounds a bit scary. But that's because it is. But we've been getting over some of our evangelophobia anyway. And I believe that the Lord is going to give us the courage and the wisdom and the wiliness to do what he wants us to do. As we launch our mission communities and prepare for the second year of the Tottenham Christian Festival, we're going to need the right perspective. We're going to need Jesus' perspective. We're going to need to be really diligent in prayer this year. And we're going to need to be full of courage. God has prepared a harvest for himself and he's sending us to gather it in. Now, what I'd love to do with the 20 minutes we have left is just ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us and to bless us. I think we all need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. The disciples needed to receive two things before they could go and be effective harvesters. First thing they needed was training, and that's going to be the focus over the next few months. Second thing was they needed was to receive Jesus' power and authority. Jesus never sent his disciples out without saying, first come and receive the authority and the power that that he has been given to see the harvest brought in. It says in Luke 9, 1 and 2, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So I feel the Lord wants to equip us afresh this morning. We're going to meet challenges this year that we're going to need a fresh infilling of his authority to be able to overcome. 
We need his power this year, like we've never needed it before. I felt as I was preparing that God wanted us to, to fill us all with his spirit and give us authority to see people healed and set free in his name. I really believe he wants us to be doing that. And I'm excited in my spirit about what God wants to do both in the whole of this year, but also what he wants to do with us this morning. So we're going to finish the service by setting up three stations, a little bit like we do with communion, where when we're ready, we'll, we'll come up and we'll take the bread and the wine. Um, but instead, we're going to just, when we're ready, we'll come up and we're going to ask the Lord just to fill you with his spirit for this year, to see uh, his authority and his power begin to work through you as you step out in faith. Does that sound good? Filling stations, if you like. <laughs>